0: As we turn together to the book of Acts, chapter 19. It seems like it was just yesterday we started in Acts. It wasn't. But now we are <clears throat> rapidly approaching the end of this wonderful book that gives us a description of what the early church was like, and what its ministry was like. This morning we'll be looking at Paul in Ephesus, and this will also give us, I think, some excellent guidelines and commands for what our own Christian worship and ministry should be like. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's Holy Word. Our text this morning is Acts 19. Verses 1 through 20. This is the very Word of God. It is living and powerful. It is completely without error. It is authoritative over our lives. And it is completely sufficient for our faith. Acts chapter 19. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about twelve men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, Speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Let's pray for His blessing upon it. Dear Lord, we ask this morning that You would give us ears to hear. That You would give us eyes to see. We ask, O Lord, that You would affect us by Your Word so that we would be changed. We ask all of this in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Do you wonder what power looks like? Especially in the context of the power of the Lord in our midst. You know, I think in some real sense, we Americans are obsessed with power. We have power steering, power brakes. We have power in our laundry detergents and in our cleaners, power drinks power vehicles there's nothing that isn't made just a little bit better with a little bit more horsepower right and we think that way i think too with respect to our faith we want to get over the hump to the place where our faith is strong and where we feel we're in control and have power we desire power for our ministry and for our church Desiring power, desiring to see the power of the Lord is not a bad thing. It's actually a good thing. The problem comes when the definition of power is ours and not God's. And so, this morning I would like us to see what the power of the Lord looks like. I think in some ways it will be what you expect, but I think in other ways this text surprises us, encourages us what real power, Power looks like in our lives. What the power of the Lord is. And so, what I would like us to see this morning are three aspects in which this power is manifested. First, and I think perhaps most unusual to us, is patience. Patience with the imperfect. This is the power of God. And then, secondly, perhaps the hardest. That is perseverance in the face of opposition. It is only when we understand that power comes in patience and in perseverance do we then get to understand the real power of the gospel and what that looks like as the Lord ministers to us. So patience, perseverance, and power. Let's begin then by looking at the patience that is going on here. Paul has a ministry here in Ephesus. And he begins in a patient fashion. You may recall, Paul had been in Ephesus before. And he is going to come back here, and an important part of patience is not tearing things down. You know, one of the things as we construct or build or or get things together, if we're not satisfied with what is exactly the way we need it to be, we have a tendency to want to wipe it clean and start all over. We've drawn a picture, and it's not quite right, so we erase it. We've built a tower, and it's not quite straight, so we knock it down. Not so here in the work of the Lord. Paul comes back to Ephesus, a place he had been just shortly before, and Ephesus is a very important place. Ephesus is a large city. I spent a little bit of time this week, as one of the things I've tried to do is to compare cities to give you an idea. So we talked about... Corinth as the Las Vegas of the ancient world. I think Ephesus, if I had to, if I was forced to put a a city that you were familiar with on it, I would say Ephesus is a lot like Chicago. It's not the biggest city in the Roman Empire, but it's big. It's a city with a lot of uh, commerce. It's a city with a large port, which Chicago does as well on the lake. It's a city that is not as cosmopolitan as a place like Alexandria or as Corinth. It is more of a Greek city. As a matter of fact, something we'll see uh, the next time we get together is that the defining characteristic of Ephesus was its Greek mythological religion of Diana. And so... Ephesus is this large city. It is a place from which the gospel can jump out. If you could just picture in your mind's eye, if all of the Midwest was unevangelized, what a great place Chicago would be. You could go off to Milwaukee, to Indianapolis, to Detroit, to Pittsburgh, all kinds of places it would be a staging ground. That's how important Ephesus is. Ephesus is also a place that is under economic pressure. Perhaps you can relate to that. Ephesus was a wealthy place. It was so wealthy that when Mark Antony conducted his war against who would later be Caesar Augustus, in order to pay for it, he taxed Ephesus at ten times the normal rate. How would you like to get that in your tax bill this week? You can imagine what that would do, even in a wealthy place. It would make them feel squeezed. It would make them feel anxious. It's a strategic city. And Paul knows this because we will see that Paul will spend at least three years here in this city, which has been very unusual for him. He has spent two years in Corinth, but now he is going to spend three years in Ephesus, two in the text that we've read today. Well, Paul was here earlier, you recall. He went and spoke at the synagogue. They begged him to stay, but he said, no, I've got to go to Jerusalem. But it was important enough that in the meantime, he left Priscilla and Aquila and they met Apollos. And they had a ministry here in Ephesus. I imagine that they spoke about the Lord Jesus Christ. I imagine they had evangelistic conversations. Perhaps there was even a small fledgling church. And so Paul comes back And he meets these disciples. And these disciples, if what they know confuses you, you're in good company. Because no one is really sure how much they know. Have they believed enough to be Christians or not? Do they just have an Old Testament kind of belief? Because they understand John's baptism. But then there's this comment about they don't even know who the Holy Spirit is. And so it would be very easy for Paul to walk in and say to himself, well, I guess I can't leave Priscilla and Aquila anywhere anymore. I'm going to have to start from scratch. All right, wipe the slate clean. Now let's give you real teaching. But Paul doesn't do that. Do you see it? He asks a series of questions, questions not designed to make these disciples embarrassed about what they don't know but rather to find out what they need to know so he can fill in the gaps you see paul is not too proud to be a helper to priscilla and aquila this is the paul that we know and love from the scriptures and so the question then i think comes to us to you are you thankful for god's work in others Are you thankful for what others have been able to do? Perhaps there has been someone who has touched a member of your family that you have not been able to. Rather than regretting that you were unable, or rather than being jealous, are you truly thankful to the Lord that He's working in others? You see, this is the way the church works. Because let me tell you a secret. Others are thankful for the way God is at work in your life. That's how it works. God is the one who is over all. And so here we have these disciples. Perhaps they are disciples of John. They have, one commentator has put it, I think, best. They are at least Old Testament believers, and at best, nominal Christians. They're kind of caught in the middle. They have a defective belief. And so Paul then begins not only not tearing down, but He then begins to build up on that foundation that others have laid. And so He asks them if they have heard of the Spirit. And this comment they make, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Now, we need to understand this, that this is not that they've never heard the words Holy Spirit, or don't know what the Holy Spirit is, or who the Holy Spirit is, because the Old Testament is full of the Spirit of God. What that means is, They haven't even understood or heard that the Holy Spirit has come. They've heard of John and his baptism. And you remember that John's teaching was that one would come after him who would baptize not with water, but with the Holy Spirit. And so they say, we don't know. We're waiting around. We're not sure what's going on. They already knew about The concept of repentance. They already knew about the concept of preparing for the one who was to come from John. But now Paul is going to begin to take them to the next step. He's going to begin laying on this foundation. And he begins by perfecting their understanding. Now, Paul is patient. Paul is gentle. But he doesn't say to them, well, I suppose that's good enough for you. You know, we can't all know everything. I think I'll move on. No, he says to them, let me explain to you in a better way what the Scriptures teach. And so he tells them, the one who is waiting, the one whom John baptized repentance for the one who is to come, that one has come and his name is Jesus. He says, what you know, you know correctly. You just need to build on that and know more. And you should rejoice about what you know because... Now you know who Jesus is. He's the one you've been waiting for. Are you willing to grow in knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ? You see, all of us, no matter where we are on the scale of knowledge, no matter how many Bible verses we have memorized, no matter how many doctrines we know, we all have to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I tell you that not because it's a good idea, Not because I'm for it. I tell you that because the Bible tells you you must. Peter ends his second letter by encouraging those whom he's writing to to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus. And you see, that's what Paul challenges these disciples to do. He's patient. And from a result, the result of this is encouraging because they follow on what they have now heard and learned and brought in and they begin to obey. They begin by obeying by being baptized. And this is the only instance in all of Acts where someone is baptized the second time because it's a different baptism. Now, you understand what this looks like in terms of following on what you know with obedience. Any of you that have children, you explain to them what they need to do to empty the dishwasher. How do you judge whether they have learned how to empty the dishwasher. When they actually empty the dishwasher. They show you that they have brought it in, that they know how to do this, that they're willing to do this, and they understand the importance of it. And this could be true of anything. Cleaning rooms, learning how to drive. The way in which we understand best and show others that we understand is by our actions, our obedient actions. And so this is the patience that Paul shows but Paul is not just patient because not everyone here in Ephesus is a willing disciple he also has to have perseverance in the face of opposition because you see what Paul does after this instance here with the disciples he goes in verse 8 and enters the synagogue and for three months speaks boldly now don't forget the context When Paul left Ephesus just a bit ago, they were begging him to stay. Do you remember? Could you just teach us some more about this Jesus? You may recall that wasn't just out and about in Ephesus. That was in the synagogue. So Paul comes back, and you can imagine he would naturally be optimistic. Well, I've lost a few weeks or a month or so of teaching, but I'm sure we can hit the ground running. Now, what was it that I was last teaching on? What were the last Bible texts that I was teaching? preaching on? Should, should I use the prophets or should I maybe go back to Genesis? Let me, let me come in here and start teaching again. And you can imagine he would be encouraged and be ready to see them really take root and a church build here in the synagogue. Because unlike other cities, not only did they not drive him out of the city, they wanted him to stay. And so he comes back and he speaks and teaches with a boldness for three months He's back at, again, his same mode of operation. His method is the same. He comes to reason with them. The word here, you may recall, for reasoning, we've seen it over and over again, every city that Paul's in, is the same word that we get dialogue from. Paul's answering questions. He's teaching in perhaps what we would call, and some of you students know as, the Socratic method. Questions and answers. Paul's not only getting questions, he's asking questions. He's trying to teach them. And so, he is reasoning with them. But he is not just a theoretical lecturer. Because not only is he reasoning, he is also persuading. Any good preacher desires to do that. You don't just dump information out. You tell people they need to believe this because the Bible says so. You need to close with Jesus Christ because that's your only hope. You have to persuade. And so that is what Paul is doing. He's not just telling them a story about Jesus. He's telling them that they are lost in their sins. And if they have any hope at all of eternal life, if they have any hope in life, any hope to be right with God and to be right with their neighbors, it can only be through Jesus. This is what Paul is teaching boldly. He's teaching boldly without any fear of man. Do you have boldness when you speak to your neighbors about Jesus or your co-workers. Now, I don't mean loudness or obnoxiousness. I mean boldness. I mean speaking even soft tones, even asking good questions, but without fear. And before you say, well, Pastor, I'm not the Apostle Paul. <laughs> Paul can do this, but I get tongue-tied. Paul was bold all the time, Right? This came easily to Paul, right? He was, he was a man who sat at the feet of Gamaliel. He was traveling all over the place, an itinerant preacher and missionary. Of course it would be easy for Paul to speak boldly. Except for we know this. Paul wrote a letter to this church. It's the book of Ephesians. And in the sixth chapter, in that section where he speaks about the armor of God, he says this to this church. He says, please pray for me also, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I might declare it boldly as I ought to speak. You see, Paul had to ask for prayer that he would speak boldly. Paul was in the same spot that you are. He persevered. He spoke boldly. And this was something that he did even beyond Ephesus. We'll see that at the very end of Acts, in chapter 28, Paul is doing this very thing. He is speaking and proclaiming boldly the kingdom of God. Well, Paul is speaking boldly, but what is the message? The message might seem at first a bit odd. It says that he spoke and persuaded about the kingdom of God. Now, we might expect Luke to tell us that Paul was speaking about the resurrection, as he has in the past, or about the forgiveness of sins, or about uh, repentance or faith. But what does this mean when he speaks about the kingdom of God? You see, the kingdom of God here and in other places is shorthand, it is a summary for the gospel and what the Gospel is. And it's, it's actually a very good summary, because it combats some mistaken thinking about the Gospel. What do you think the Gospel is? What is it about? If someone asked you to give an elevator speech, you know what that is, right? Where you get on an elevator with someone, and you're going to be on there 60 to 90 seconds, and then you're going to get off. What elevator speech would you give about the Gospel? Is the Gospel just about forgiveness of sins? Well, it certainly is about the forgiveness of sins. The Gospel is about a holy God who is perfect. And man who is sinful, who has gone his own way, who has rebelled against God, who has gone against holiness, who has sought sin out instead, and as a result is condemned to eternal damnation. But the work of the Lord Jesus Christ upon the cross took that sin upon Himself... And so we can be forgiven for our sins. He took our punishment so we can be reconciled with God. But is the gospel just about that? Is it just about me and whether I go to heaven or to hell? That's certainly an important component about the gospel, isn't it? We wouldn't want to forget that. But the gospel is bigger than that. You see, the gospel is bigger than you and me. The gospel is bigger than the forgiveness of sins. The gospel is about the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, essentially renewing all of creation, including redeemed sinners. And so the kingdom of God is the reign of God over the earth. It is about the reign of God in Jesus Christ, renewing all of creation. This is what John the Baptist was saying when he says, the kingdom of God is at hand. Do you ever wonder what Jesus taught on during the 40 days before He ascended? Let me refresh your recollection. In Acts 1, verse 3, He presented Himself alive to them after suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the Kingdom of God. The Gospel. This is what Paul was doing. Now, I'm sure this was a great joy to Paul to teach and to put across the great truths of Scripture. But it was not easy. Part of persevering is not giving up. Not giving up is very important. You know, various branches of the military have a saying. Once a quitter, always a quitter. Now, I don't think the Bible says that because I think there's room for grace and forgiveness. But there is a real sense in which once you begin to quit and have a pattern of quitting, quitting comes easier. It's like any other sin. And so Paul here is persevering even in the face of opposition. You see, opposition will come to the gospel. And it begins to come here even in this synagogue that Paul had thought was so friendly. What happened was some became stubborn and continued in unbelief. They became stubborn in their unbelief. Now, I want you to get a picture in your mind of what this stubbornness looks like. It's, it's almost a medical term of something becoming hard and crusty. It's actually the Greek word that's used in the story of Pharaoh. You remember the Greek translation of the Old Testament? Well, when they talk about Pharaoh and his hard heart, that had become hardened, and you remember all that went along with that his lies, his abuse of the Israelites, his disbelief of Moses, his disbelief of God. His heart was hardened. The same thing happened here, ironically, to Jews. It shows that sitting in a church is not a defense against a hard heart. Because you see, these Jews would have gone throughout their entire life, learning about the hardness of Pharaoh and how Pharaoh was the bad guy and they were the good guys. But you see, they were becoming the bad guy here because they rejected the truth of the Lord. This is something that we should take to heart because this word is the same word that is used in the great warning passages of Hebrews 3 and 4. Do you remember that? Where we are told... Today, to believe and not to harden our hearts? Don't be like Pharaoh. Don't be like these Jews. Don't be hard to the Gospel. Believe on the Lord Jesus. Believe in the truth of God's Word. They become hard in their hearts and then they begin to attack. They attack Jesus. They say bad things about what Paul is teaching They tell others that this is stupid, backwards, Neanderthal, caveman. Obviously not what intellectuals believe. Obviously not what good people believe. Probably all of the things that you have heard people out there say about the Scriptures and believing in the Bible. They attack the way Paul and others are living. That's what it means when it says that they spoke evil of the way. The way is not only what Paul believed, it was how he lived. So what is Paul to do? Well, Paul, I think, here exercises some wisdom. He says, I'm not going to make any more headway here, so I'm going to go someplace else. And the first thing that we need to realize is, that is judgment upon those who have rejected Jesus. Because they stop hearing about Jesus. And if the Lord Jesus Christ is the only one who can save us from our sins, the only one who can meet us and reconcile us to God, then the worst thing that could happen is to have Jesus taken away from us. It's like having air taken away from you when you need to breathe. You may for a bit think that you have your way, but when you're gasping on the floor, it won't seem so good. But Paul goes, and he goes and he finds an open place. And this is, this is absolutely brilliant. Paul is, if you want to see a biblical definition of an entrepreneur, gentlemen, It's Paul. Because what Paul does is, and we know this from uh, other manuscripts, and it makes sense, that he rents this hall between the hours of 11 and 4. Now any of you that have ever been to a Mediterranean country like Spain or Italy know what happens between the hours of 11 and 4, right? Basically nothing. Everybody takes a siesta. One commentator puts it this way. It's just, it's very funny to me. He says, more people would be asleep at 1 p.m. than at 1 a.m. in Ephesus. And so Paul goes that he gets this hall when it's cheapest. And when no one has any work. Everybody's free. The only person this is hard for is Paul. Because he's working in the morning as a tent maker. But he takes this step forward because he knows the gospel is important. One last thing about perseverance. That you need to hear not only about the Gospel, but even about your lives and your family. I've said this before, but I will say it again. The Christian life is a marathon, not a sprint. Have you ever watched a marathon with an inexperienced runner? You know, one of the guys not from Kenya or Ethiopia? One of the guys that as soon as the the gun goes off bang, they're off in the front. And they're running like the wind. And the guys from Kenya and Ethiopia are slipping behind and slipping behind. And you look and you say, wow, this guy's going to tear it up. He's going to win for sure. And then at about mile two, he's... He can't breathe. And he probably... If he finishes, he probably finishes in the very back. You see, we can do that too in our life. We don't realize we need to pace ourselves. Now... Those great marathon runners, they don't sit on the side. They're not lazy. But they know what they've got to do. And they know they've got to stay active the whole 26 miles. And so they arrange to do that. That's what the Christian life is like. In the church, in your family, at work, it's a marathon. And so this is what allows the gospel to get out as Luke tells us to all in Asia. Well, Paul has been patient. Paul has also been persevering. And because of that, Paul will now see along with us the power of the Gospel. And the power appears first in a way we can most readily understand in a miraculous power. Look with me at verse 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. Now that's Redundant, isn't it? These aren't regular old miracles. These aren't everyday kind of miracles. These are extraordinary miracles. The word here for extraordinary is things that do not happen ordinarily. Things that are out of the course of life. So these kinds of miracles are ones that will get everyone's attention. Now, why would God do this here? We don't read of this kind of thing in Corinth. It's because Ephesus in addition to being the ancient Chicago, is also the witch capital of the world. We're going to see that later. It's a place where magic arts are everywhere. Everybody's got a spell. Everybody knows the evil eye. Everybody's got a potion or two. That's what Ephesus was known for. As a matter of fact, the, the word for spell in the ancient world was Ephesian letters. That was the word for spell. And so, Paul is entering into a place where magic is very common. And so God begins then to work to get people's attention. First, through healings. And it's very interesting what happens here. The the Bible text is is a bit um, sanitized. It talks about handkerchiefs and aprons. You may have heard the word even napkins, I think, in the King James. What this basically is, is Paul's work do-rag. You know, when you're working, and there's no air conditioning, you need to keep the sweat out of your eyes, especially when you're working with with leather material making tents. And so it's the, the handkerchief, the napkin, the cloth that Paul would tie around his forehead. And so the point that the Bible is making here is not that we should go out seeking magic handkerchiefs, it's that even something as mundane and quite frankly disgusting as a used sweat rag, God is using to heal people miraculously. God is using the filthy, mean things of the world to overcome the greatest spells that anyone in Ephesus could have. You need to see that power. It's extraordinary. God is trumping anything that anyone else could do in Ephesus. You see, it's because God wants to show us real power here. We see it in another way. Paul's work is so effective that seven sons of a chief priest or a high priest, now you need to know here that Sceva is not a real high priest, because he would be in Jerusalem then. He's a Jew that walks around Ephesus with his chest puffed out, saying, I'm the big priest. I know the most. I'm the most powerful. And his kids figure that they got to keep on the family business of bragging. And so they see Paul being effective, and they say, let's just do what he does. And they walk around saying, now think about how ridiculous this is. They don't know who Jesus is, and they don't even say, I command you in Jesus' name... They say, I command you in Jesus' name, you know, the guy that Paul talks about. They don't even say the Jesus that I talk about. They say the Jesus that Paul talks about. And one of the funniest lines in all of the Bible, the Bible is very humorous, is this demon looks at them and he says, you know, Jesus I know, and I'm familiar with Paul. But you I don't. So it's on. And he jumps on these seven men... And they leave wounded, bleeding, and naked. Now, is that proof to show you that there's no magic incantation in Jesus? That when you pray, there's no magic in closing in Jesus' name? It's the power of faith. It's not the words. Because you see, what's involved here is the defeat of Satan by God. And the power of God differs from magic because magic is an attempt to manipulate God or the gods to get a predetermined result. And miracles instead are the way God attests to the power that He has already put forth in salvation. Well, what does this real power look like? Finally, it looks like life-changing power. That's the power of God. Because you see what happens here after our humorous interlude with the seven sons is that everyone is kind of in awe of what is happening and the power of Jesus. And so what happens is fear falls on all of them and those who are believers, they now come and confess and divulge their practices. Now what does this mean? It means that they give up on magic. Because you see what makes magic powerful is the secret. Right? Does a magician ever tell you how he does the trick? If he does, what happens to the trick? It's worthless. And so they come forward and they confess. They speak out their spells. They say these have no more value. There's no more worth to it. They show you where the rabbit is in the hat. They're giving up on this life completely. And this kind of repentance does not come cheap. They take all of their spell books and they burn them. And we're told that it, the worth of it is 50,000 pieces of silver. Let me give you two ways to think about this. One piece of silver was an ordinary man's day's wage. So that meant that the value of these books was enough to pay a man every day. Remember, there's no holidays or vacation in the ancient world. Every day. For 137 years. It was enough to feed a hundred families for almost two years. This kind of repentance does not come easy. It's not cheap. Because you see, when God gets a hold of you, when God brings you to repentance, when God shows you who He is, that power from the Lord cannot be slowed down, it cannot be stopped. Victory is at hand. We see that here at the end of our passage, don't we? It's not just that they repented and burned a lot of costly things, but as a result, the word of the Lord continued to increase and to prevail mightily. Do you want to see the word of the Lord increase and prevail? Then you must be patient with others, you must persevere through difficulties. And you must trust yourself to the power of the living God, giving up everything of yourself, repenting before Him, and seeking His glory alone. That's where true power is found.